Hello again, and welcome to the Home Bible Study Podcast. I'm looking forward to continuing our study in Hebrews. Uh, Last time we left off at the end of chapter 8, and we're going to do a little review of the last part, the last verse of chapter 8, just so that we can continue and follow through into the next chapter 9 that we'll be studying. I think it's important because it's a continuation of the things that were said. So just in case you weren't uh, with us during that lesson, then um, it'll help you maintain the continuity of this uh, study. So uh, in Hebrews, uh, we're going to study chapter 9, but we're going to start in uh, chapter 8, verse 13. Now, uh, I'll read it first. Uh, In that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and wax old is is ready to vanish away. So uh, in uh, chapter 8, 6 through 13, we see uh, or we saw a lot about the Old Testament um, compared to the New Testament and how that the Old Testament prophets spoke of the New Testament uh, in several passages, um, and they talked about a better and more perfect relationship. So a covenant can be described as a relationship, as God's relationship to man, and particularly to the nation Israel. And all relationships have um, terms. And God has very specific terms for a relationship with him. And he requires um, certain things because of his righteousness and his holiness for us as man to be able to enter into a relationship with him. And he provides everything that's needed for that relationship. Never does God look to man and say, hey, you know, what do you think? would be good for our relationship. God lays out the terms of what that relationship is and how it works because he's righteous and he's holy and we are not. So we, because of sin and because of our sin nature, it's required that we have uh, certain rules to be able to approach a righteous and a holy God. And that's what a covenant relationship is. So the old covenant relationship, now in Hebrews, uh, the writer is explaining that, you know, we have a better relationship. And that needed to be explained to the Hebrews because they had thousands of years of... Um, being under this old covenant, this old relationship. And so it was ingrained into their society, into their culture. So it's very important now that Jesus has uh, made a new, better relationship, that they embrace the newness and the betterness of this relationship and not fall back into the old ways as many of the people around them try to encourage them to do. So the writer is now addressing that and showing how the relationship now is better. First, in chapter 8, he showed how that, hey, this is not new. I'm not just making this up. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so now he's going to paint the picture using some very powerful symbols Uh, cultural icons, you might say, to show how that those things were a shadow and they pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, keep that in mind as we study. So the Old Testament prophets spoke of a new covenant, a new relationship that would be closer. That's what we studied last time. Uh, A more personal relationship based... um, in the same mercy, but manifested in greater detail. So, you know, be careful to understand that this is not a different God. It's the same 
God. It's the same Jesus, you know. It's just that now the relationship has changed from the standpoint of man being brought closer to him. He is still holy, righteous, and exalted as always, but now man has benefited from the from the things that Jesus has done to bring man closer to him. And that's what the writer is pointing out. So um, let's uh, take a look at that. Um, and like I said, in, in verse uh, 13 of chapter 8, uh, in that he saith a new, there it says covenant, it's in italics because that uh, was inserted by, uh, it's not in the original text. So you can use, you can, you can, you know, substitute that word for relationship because, you know, we don't speak of covenants now. If you're a lawyer, uh, they do use covenants in, in the legal field, but, uh, you know, you and me, you know, Jim and John on the street, Sally and Susie, we we understand relationships. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use that term. So in that he saith a new relationship, um, verse thirteen, chapter eight, he hath made the first old, right? Because if we're talking about something new, then that means the first covenant, the first relationship is now old. Now it says now. Okay, that word now is very important. Um, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So we're talking about now. That was then, that was prophesied. The Old Testament was back then. But now that word connects us back to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 where it says, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. So now, this is what we have now. And that's what we need to embrace. That's what these Hebrew people needed to embrace. What we have now. Not what we had in the past. Because what we have now is better. So, uh, with that said, we're going to move into... Um, Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to go ahead and read the verses first and then we'll dive in uh, to the study. So starting in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinance of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory uh, shadowing the mercy seat and of which we cannot speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But in the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Verse 8, the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? So that's quite a bit. So let's dive in here and see if we can see what's being said here. So the the writer is now using the familiarity of the tabernacle uh, the significance of the tabernacle to paint a picture of what we have now so he's pointing to the old to show how what we have now is better now I don't know if you've studied the Old Testament if you've studied Numbers or Leviticus Deuteronomy, um, Exodus, these books go into detail uh, and they establish the tabernacle and its importance. And uh, the tabernacle was, when they wandered through the wilderness, whenever they were to stop, they stopped and they erected the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, would hover over that uh, tabernacle and whenever it was time to move they would take the tabernacle down and each tribe had a uh, role to play in taking that tabernacle down and putting it up and they would take it down and they would move and they'd follow that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night and this was the happened for 40 years that's how ingrained this was into their uh, society into their lifestyle and everything was done in order and you know the horns would be blown and each tribe knew what they were supposed to do and which tribe was to lead first which tribe was to handle what part of the uh, tabernacle some would handle the very heavy things the post uh, the very heavy parts of it there was a tribe dedicated to that there's a tribe that handled the um uh, Furniture, you know, the things that are being spoken about here in verse in chapter nine, uh, you know, the the uh, sons of Korah, they would handle the uh, the actual lampstands and the um, actual uh, Ark of the Covenant. So and all of these things were done in order and they were very much a part of that culture. So the writer is now pointing back to that to say, this is how we interact or interacted with God in the past. Now we have something better. So uh, he makes a point to, to point out how that the very uh, layout or the way that the uh, tabernacle was set up proves and showed that there was a limited access to God. And now through Christ, we have a better, closer access. And he says, Verily in the first covenant had their ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. And it's true. Uh, they knew this. For there was a tabernacle made. And he says, in the first part of the tabernacle, he's talking about the holy place. Because the tabernacle was set up, the first room you entered when you entered the tabernacle was called the holy place. And then beyond, there was a veil, and beyond that veil was the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the Shekinah glory rested. And no one could go into that room. Once that uh, tabernacle was erected and that uh, Ark of the Covenant in place, the Shekinah glory came in there and no one could go in that room because that was the presence of God. So he's saying the very way that the uh, tabernacle was set up showed that there was still yet a barrier between man and God. And that's what he's pointing out. He's saying um, for there was a tabernacle made in the first when he says the first tabernacle, he's talking about the first part of the tent, the holy place. He says there was the candlesticks, the table of showbread, and that was the sanctuary, right? That's what that was. 
but that's as close as anyone could get. And only the Levitical priests of a certain age uh, that met certain conditions could serve in that part. And outside of that was the uh, brazen altar. And no one who was not a Levitical priest that was serving, right, could go beyond that brazen altar. Well, what is that brazen altar? Well, that's the place where sin was dealt with, right? That's where the sacrifice was made. That's where the offers were placed upon a fire and burned and uh, lifted up as a sweet savor to God. That's as far as man could go, right? Because that's the way it was set up. Now, certain ones were allowed to serve, and that was the Levitical priest, and certain ones of those were allowed to serve in this office. Now, then he talks about the things that were beyond that, beyond the veil in that Holy of Holies, where there was the... Uh, Ark of the Covenant. Inside that Ark, there was Aaron's rod that budded, right? Um, there was also the manna, a jar with the manna in it, which the manna would could not be kept in a jar or anything because it would spoil, right, overnight. So what they would do is they'd have to eat it that day because they couldn't save any. And that was to teach them that they had to trust and believe that God was going to provide for them daily. If anybody tried to save some for the next day, then it would it would just spoil. But this manna inside of this jar was miraculously kept as a testimony and a witness to God's provision. And that's what these things speak of. Uh, and these were inside this Ark of the Covenant. That and the tables of the of the relationship, that's talking about the law that uh, was given to Moses, uh, the first 10 commandments that were putting on, on the tablets that he brought back. And those were, uh, those were also inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And all of this is very symbolic and meaningful. And it all points and speaks of the perfections of Christ the relationship, the righteousness, the provision, the power of God is all represented in that Ark of the Covenant, right? So that's why he's pointing that out. And in verse five, he says, and over it, cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So there was this, the, the lid of the Ark was, uh, there were two, angels with their wings facing each other and they were both uh, kind of shadowing over the mercy seat that was between them. That was a picture or a type of what we know to be heaven. Now we know that because we can see in the a book of Revelation where uh, there's angels surrounding the, the throne of God and all they do is proclaim his holiness. So that was, again, a picture of the mercy seat uh, of the Lord Jesus, even the pre-incarnate Christ. So all of that was given to the nation Israel, okay? They had those things. That's something that set them apart from every other nation. They had a relationship with God. That's what set them apart. Okay, and he's acknowledging that, right? And so he's saying, you know, all of these things are associated with our worship of God in the past. He says now in verse six, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So that's like I mentioned, the Levitical priests would go in there daily and they would accomplish the service of God. They'd make sure the table of showbread was out. They'd make sure the lampstands were lit. All of the things that needed to be done for the proper worship and approach to God, they accomplished according to strict uh, requirements that God had set forth. And there was no uh, deviating from those instructions. Uh, Nadim and Abidu 
tried to deviate and offer strange fire. It said they tried to offer something that was not ordained by God and he struck them dead. So God's holiness, his righteousness is unyielding. It's unforgiving because the very nature of God demands that you approach him in a certain way, right? And the only way we can know this or to learn this is through him giving us that instruction. That's what the law was. The law was to instruct the nation Israel on the holiness and righteousness of God so that they would learn of their own inability through God's righteousness and why they could not approach him just any kind of way. So that's clearly established. All right. So then he points to the fact of the Holy of Holies. He said, now, the Holy of Holies, the second tabernacle, as he calls it, only the high priest went in there once a year and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. So once a year, he would go in and he would, according to the law, offer sacrifices for himself and for the people. And he would do this in hopes that uh, God would forgive them uh, for the transgressions for the whole year. This was the, the great day of atonement. And so uh, the, the high priest was chosen to go in. It was a great honor. And they would tie a rope around his ankle. And the rope had bells on it. And they would all be afar off listening, Right. Because remember, they can't go beyond the brazen offer, brazen altar. So he's in there in the Holy of Holies and they had that rope around his leg because if God struck him dead, they can't go in and get him. So they have to pull him out. And the bells let him know that he was still alive and performing the service. So you can imagine the thousands of people, the silence in listening to see the anticipation to see if God was going to um, cover over their sins for another year. So, uh, and God always did. Um, so, but but that can only happen, there was only, only the high priest who was selected, and that can only happen once a year. So, this was, this was the process. In verse 8, the writer is telling us what this signifies. And he says, the Holy Ghost in this signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. Look at this metaphor that's being made. He's saying the first tabernacle was as close as we could get. And then we had to be afar off. And as long as the second tabernacle was veiled off, there can only one person can go in there once a year to perform. And he's saying the Holy Ghost was showing them and us that the way into the Holy of Holies was not, could not be accomplished as long as the first tabernacle was there. There was a barrier between us and God. And that barrier was because of sin. Okay? Our sin. Our sin prevented us from being able to have that unfettered access to God. And Jesus accomplished that for us. So in verse 9, he says now that that was just a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifice, sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience. Okay, so even though that high priest went in once a year, he would offer these gifts and these sacrifices um, as prescribed by God, but those things really never dealt with sin permanently. You, it would only cover over sin, and you'd have to wait till next year to see if you were going to be okay. So the sin issue had never been resolved. 
And that's what is being taught to us through this tabernacle, right? One of the aspects of the tabernacle is to show us that sin has has never been resolved. The the brazen altar was constantly on fire burning sacrifices because there was constantly sin that had to be dealt with. And the high priest could not deal with that once and for all. Not the high priest that came from men, not from the Levitical priesthood, right? And that's what he's saying here. It was just a figure. Now, verse 10, uh, he says, this uh, figure which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reparation, reformation. So these ordinances were given or imposed upon mankind so that we could learn and see that we have a need. A good example, this is how God has dealt with man from the beginning. And a good example of that is Adam. Adam was presented with the task of naming all the animals. And God would present each animal to him. And he noticed that, and he would name them, and he noticed there was a male and a female. A male and a female. Okay, that's going to be a cow, male and a female, bull cow. That's a lion, lioness, okay? A monkey, boy monkey, girl monkey, right? Uh, boy A, female A. And so in doing that, Adam realized, hey, there's not a female for me. So you can see how that God uses this same method here by showing that, hey, we're constantly offering sacrifices and we never are able to deal finally and for good with this, this sin issue. And even once a year when the high priest goes in there, it just covers over our sins for another year, but it never is finally dealt with. And so that's what these things were. That's what verse 10 is saying. These meats and drinks and washings and carnal ordinances were imposed on them until the time of reformation and that's what was prophesied about in the last part of chapter 8 that there was going to come a time where things were going to be reformed where there won't be any need for these washings and the blood of goats and uh, bulls all of that's going to go away and something better is coming and the author is saying now is that time. Now in these last days hath he spoken to us in his son. Okay. Verse 11. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So here we see the writer making his point very clear that Jesus is the real tabernacle. That tabernacle that played such a huge role in the life of the Hebrew people was just a shadow or a type of the tabernacle that was to come. What is a tabernacle anyway? A tabernacle is a tent is what it is. What does Jesus say that his body is? Our bodies are. They're temples or tents. That's what they are. Well, who we are and what we are, this body houses that. Who and what we really are is inside of the bodies that we uh, move and function with. Our bodies allow our soul to have expression, to be able to communicate to be able to interact with others. Jesus became our high priest by taking on a body. And he became the fulfillment of that tabernacle. Okay? Now, he can interact with us personally. No longer are we interacting with a tent we're not interacting with lampstands 
or a table of showbread or an ark with, you know, angels wings uh, hovering over it. Those things are a type. Now he's given us heaven itself. Now we can have an intimate and personal relationship with him. Because he is the perfect tabernacle. He is the way that we can access God personally, individually, corporately. That's what it says here. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Okay? So... The tabernacle was the closest anyone could get to God. Each piece of that furniture tells a story of the perfections of God, specifically those perfections in Christ. He said, I am the light. That's the lampstands. Uh, the table of showbread. He says, I am the bread. Uh, and the table of showbread was all the bread was pierced. Uh, all of those were, were signs or pictures of parts of who he is and what he was coming to accomplish on our behalf. The tabernacle in itself was a gift. The law was not, but the tabernacle was a gift to mankind. It allowed the nation Israel to perceive the perfections of God. It allowed them to experience those perfections in the form of the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant. They got to see the power of God to bring life from death in that uh, Aaron's rod that budded. They got to see the provision of God in the manna. Okay, They see the righteousness, righteousness of God in the tablets uh, of the covenant, the law. So all of those things came to fruition in the Lord Jesus. He is the fulfillment of that tabernacle type. He is the perfect tabernacle. What a blessing that is to meditate on. So verse 12, it says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained obtained eternal redemption for us. That's what he did. He obtained that eternal redemption for us. So let's look at that a little bit and see just what that means. Um, in comparison to what he said about the tabernacle and how that the high priest would go in and he'd have to he'd have to offer um make an offering for himself as well as for the people well we see that the lord jesus did that once and for all so that no offerings need to be made there's no um brazen altar as a part of Christian service. We don't have a brazen altar. There's no judgment for sin um, that has to be done. It was done once and for all by the Lord Jesus. He took upon that role when he became the lamb. And I want you to see something that I think is very interesting. Uh, it says that for if the blood of bulls and goats, verse 13, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? So he's pointing back to the sin offering that was made. It was a very special offering. It involved the red heifer uh, and the sprinkling of the ashes. Whenever they were um, traveling, and somebody needed to be ceremonially cleansed, right? Because of some sin that they committed during the wilderness journey. They had these ashes from a red heifer that would be a, uh, that they would sprinkle upon them that would make them ceremonially 
clean to be able to deal with that sin even while they were moving and they didn't have the altar set up or the tabernacle set up to be able to deal with that way. So this was a special provision made so that sin could be dealt with even while they were, uh, when the tabernacle was not uh, uh, set up. So that's what's being alluded to here, that if that, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean can sanctify unto the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself with, without spot to God, purge your consciousness from dead works to serve a living God? So verse 14 I think reveals something that if you move too fast, you might miss it. It says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. So here we see something that you could easily miss. When Jesus offered himself and sin was placed upon him on the cross, he literally died. There wasn't a figurative death. Uh, he literally died. So how is it that he could offer himself in the role of a high priest to God if he's dead? Right? Because the high priest would offer sacrifices for himself and then for others, but he was alive while he was doing that. So sure, he could do that. How did Jesus accomplish this? Well, it says right here, who through the eternal spirit. So God, the Holy Spirit became, stepped into the role of the high priest and Jesus became the lamb. That's why John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the people. That's why in Revelations, he's described as a lamb because he is eternally that perfect lamb. When you see him in heaven, when he returns to this earth to establish the kingdom, he will have the marks of a slain lamb. He will have pierced hands, pierced feet, a pierced side. Those things are forever a part of him because he is that lamb. And those marks testify to his love, and to his righteous position to be able to claim that position that is his as the one who has redeemed all those whom the Father gave him. And God the Holy Spirit, who is eternal, is the one that offered him as a, uh, as a sacrifice to the Father. That's what it says who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. So knowing this, knowing that it was a once and for all time um, sacrifice, that it's eternal, has eternal effects, that salvation is eternal because Jesus is eternal. So knowing that, if we know that the blood of bulls and goats was sufficient for a ceremonial cleansing, how much more the blood of Christ, right? It should purge our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And here we see dead works. Well, what are these dead works that our conscience needs to be purged from? Well, save people... Uh, have an old nature. We have an old nature, so we're capable of dead works. Um, unsaved people are only capable of dead works, but we have the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to be able to do works that are associated with life, right? But we also have the ability, unfortunately, because of sin, to do dead works. So what are these these dead works. Um, well, dead works are anything that's done apart from God. That's, that's a dead work. Anything that you do that leaves God out, 
that's a dead work. Because everything we do should be in Christ, for Christ, and on behalf of Christ. Uh, we should live forever as living sacrifices uh, to God. So our work should be those things that are associating, associated with a living God. But these dead works are those things that leave God out. So the world likes to celebrate dead works. So we're actually living in a world that's, going, that's counterintuitive to a living God. We are walking and living in a world that is adverse, that has an aversion to and a, even a hatred of the living things uh, associated with God. So that's why we have to put on the whole armor of God, because we walk in a world that's contrary to uh, the word, that's contrary to truth is contrary to the things associated with a living God. Some of the things that are associated with, you know, these, these dead works, just to clarify, and this is not an exhaustive list, but it gives you an idea. Uh, people work for wealth, right? People see, you know, money as something to be attained and to work for, and it's a, a goal that consumes them. But wealth dies with the person. This makes it a dead work. Uh, contrary to what the Egyptians might have thought, you can't take it with you. Uh, so some people work for pleasure. You know, they pursue pleasure. But pleasure dies with the person. Once you die, you enter a realm that uh, doesn't allow for you to uh, pursue pleasure. If you're a believer, your pleasure is going to be serving the Lord Jesus and being in his presence. So you have nothing to worry about. The unsaved, unfortunately, they go to a different place, hell and the lake of fire. And the sad part is their desire for pleasure doesn't go away, just their ability to access it. So it's truly uh, a terrible fate. Uh, some people work for knowledge, right? They pursue knowledge. Your whole life is like, I must learn and know more. Uh, my, my theory is that everything that can be known, that needs to be known, is right in front of our face. We just don't always know how to access that information or interpret it. But still, people pursue knowledge. And uh, knowledge, again... Uh, apart from God, any knowledge that you seek apart from God is vanity, right? Because it it when you die, it does it serves you no good. It doesn't do you anything. Uh, it doesn't do anything for you once you die. You know, people say knowledge is power. Yeah, while you're alive, yeah, to some degree that's very true. But once you die, it serves you uh, in no way at all. Only the knowledge of God and the things that he reveals to us are eternal. Uh, as the things that you do for him, those things are eternal. And, you know, I say this and many people come to this realization. They will accomplish wealth. They'll access all the pleasure, all the knowledge that they ever wanted. And they're not happy. You know, you hear about it all the time. They have seemingly everything that the world could offer, but they're not happy. And a lot of these people end up committing suicide because they have no hope. Because once you accomplish all these things, what is there to do? Um, that's what they said happened to Alexander the Great. He, he conquered the entire world and he just was like, I'm totally bored. I have nothing else to drive me. And that's the thing about dead things. When dead things drive you, they drive you to death. That's what they do. Um, and a lot of these people end up, unfortunately, not having uh, any hope, not knowing the, the word, not knowing the Lord Jesus. They end up committing suicide. And it's, it's, it's very sad. Uh, some people don't, everybody doesn't, doesn't choose to commit suicide. Some people will dull that sense of, 
lost uh, uh, that sense of you know emptiness with the use of drugs or alcohol or sex, whatever they can find to be able to distract them from that. That's what they'll do. And all of those things only exacerbate the problem, right? Those things only push them further and further along into uh, closer and closer to death. And that's, these are the dead works that we have been delivered from in Christ. He has given us a hope. He has given us a purpose. He has given us uh, a love for him and for his people, for his word, and an understanding of who we are, why we are here, and what we are to accomplish. You know, these are the things that come from a living God. And that's what we're to pursue. And uh, we have his blood to, and his sacrifice, his ministry as a high priest that continuously cleanses us from those dead works, from the effects of those dead works. And uh, we can... Uh, rejoice in that. To be saved is to be joined to a living Jesus Christ. That's the point that the writer is making. Uh, that Jesus, the Messiah, is a living God. Uh, and we have been joined to him for a purpose. And he has given us better things. And we have a close relationship to him. Uh, before we were uh, separated by that brazen altar and by, by that tabernacle, that holy place. We couldn't get to the Holy of Holies, but uh, it's recorded in scripture that when Jesus gave up the ghost, when he actually died on the cross, that veil that divided the holy place from the Holy of Holies was torn from the bottom up, signifying that now the way has been made for us to go into the very presence of God. Um, that's what he accomplished. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, and, and you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He has given us life. He is alive and we serve uh, a living God. Therefore, we have life. The the fact is that Jesus dealt with sin once and for all. We now have this life. Well, how does that work? How can I know for sure that Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all? And how does that work? Like, I mean, I'm not a Hebrew. I never dealt with, you know, the blood of bulls and goats. I don't know the significance of that. But I do know that Jesus died on the cross and he died for me and that death was substitutionary and he took my sin. But like, can you explain to me how that actually works? Because, you know, in faith, I believe that. But at the same time, I'm serving a living God. I want to understand how that works. Well, just go to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, tells the story of how sin entered into uh, the world through man and that Jesus' uh, death accomplished canceling out and taking that sin away. Not just covering it over, but taking it away altogether. Because sin actually came in through Adam and it took all of mankind captive. In verse 12 of Romans chapter 5, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So basically what they're saying is, because of the sin of Adam, right, being the first man, when he sinned, sin took a foothold in Adam. Sin basically sat on a throne and it ruled mankind from that point on. Even though we hadn't sinned the same way Adam did, sin came in and it took over. And with sin comes death. And so we're all doomed 
to die, right? And be permanently separated from God. That, that's what sin accomplishes in man. It, and it all started with Adam. And that's the bad news, right? Um, in verse 21, it says, that is sin hath reigned unto death. That's why people die, it's because of sin. That's why we die. We sin uh, rules in us to the point to we get to the point of losing our life energy. You know, it's basically snuffed out. That's what happens. Uh, but the good news is, but by the same principle, grace overcomes sin. Okay, grace takes the ruling seat, the mercy seat. You see that? So. Where sin had reigned, grace, the grace of God, uh, and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ being imputed to those whom he's chosen to be saved, well, now they receive mercy. And that grace in the, through the blood of Christ is stronger, more powerful, and cancels out the sin that was once ruling. Okay? And now we get the righteousness of Christ. He lived a perfect life on earth. Perfect life. He never sinned. And he took the sin of all those the Father gave him in exchange for their sin, gave them his righteousness. Okay. And his righteousness is eternal, just like sin is. But it's more powerful. Righteousness is the greater power and it cancels out and destroys sin altogether. So now when the father sees those whom Jesus died for, he no longer sees them as sinners. He sees only his son because now they are placed in Christ. That's the good news. That's the good news that through his death, his burial and resurrection, now he has this salvation to give to whomever he wants, whomever the Father has given him. And if you're hearing this message, I strongly believe that either he has given you that righteousness or he's calling you to that. He's calling you from those dead works. And if you feel that the, your life is full of dead works, if you can see that, if you're conscious of the fact that your life is full of only dead works, then I would like to present to you the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who can deliver you from that deadness and give you hope. Give you not a hope that I hope this happens, but a hope that's sure, a hope that is I know I'm going to have this. I know this is something that I have. I know that I have him. I know that I have his eternal spirit in me. And that spirit is what will lead and guide you into life works. That's, that's the Jesus that I'm presenting to you. His blood is sufficient. His blood is greater than that of bulls and goats. And it's sufficient to deliver uh deliver you from dead works by his own blood it says the blood of god in christ can you imagine that for a moment that god would shed his own blood to deliver someone like you someone like me that love is a love that's beyond description it's pure it's eternal and it's powerful to say. Now in the wilderness, only the nation Israel, think about this. When they were in the wilderness and God gave them the tabernacle and the, the, the law and the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, when they were in the wilderness, only the nation Israel uh, are the ones who, and the ones who had access to the tabernacle the visible presence of God. Only nation Israel had that. They got the laws. They were the ones that were sprinkled with the ashes and the cleansing and the uh, the red heifer. All those ordinances were given to the nation Israel. 
Only they had the covenant promises and the relationship to God. There was not two tabernacles. There was not another tabernacle with some other people. There was only one. There was only one Shekinah glory, and it was with them. They were the elected people to receive this revelation. The nations around them, they were dead in their sin. You know, they were doing whatever they were doing, but it had nothing to do with God. You know, they were they were outside beyond the relationship with God. They didn't have a covenant. Not an old one or a new one. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They So much so that God used Israel to execute the judgment of death as they took possession of the land. They destroyed all those who for years ignored the warnings of God. That's what he did. When he said, hey, Israel, go in and take the land. Taking the land means you kill everybody and everything that's in there and you take the land. God used the nation Israel as his uh, arm of judgment. And that same God who manifested himself to these elect people, he's doing the same thing today. He's manifesting himself to those whom the Father has given him. And he's going to exact judgment on all those who are not amongst those whom the Father has given him. Because sin uh, warrants that. A righteous and a holy God must judge sin. And the only way that you can be delivered from that judgment is in the blood of Christ. The story of Rahab the harlot is something that uh, I think everybody should should study. Um, the nation Israel was going in to um, destroy Jericho. And they sent spies in to spy it out so they could figure out the best plan of attack. And uh, the people, the rulers at the time, realized that there were spies in there and they, they were looking for them. And they were, and Rahab the harlot, this woman was a prostitute, hid these spies. And she said, all I ask you to do is deliver my, me and my family because we know we've heard of you Israelites and your God and how he delivered you from the hands of Egypt. Now, Egypt was the powerhouse of that time. Um, Jericho was a, uh, you know, one a small town that if you drove through and, you know, if you didn't look for it, you'd miss it compared to Egypt. And so they knew, they had heard for many, many years of how that this nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt by their God. So the testimony of God was all over the world. So they knew. And they were afraid of these people. Rahab, she decided to align herself with the people of God, thereby her and her family being saved. And it's the same today. We, if you want to be delivered from the judgment that's coming, uh, be it the judgment that's going to come on this world or the one that's going to come upon you as an unsaved person, the only way to do that is to align yourself with the people of God, to align yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's accomplished. For those of us who are saved, we rejoice in the blood of Christ because his blood has once and for all delivered us from the consequence and the penalty of sin. Does that mean that we should continue in dead works? Paul says, uh, God forbid. No, we don't do that. We don't sin because we've been saved. We, we pursue the, the works that are associated with life, those things that please the Father, those things that manifest the Lord Jesus to a dying and lost world. That's what we're to be doing. That is the only response that we could have to 
what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So this is the message that uh, the writer has to these Hebrew people, that we have better things in Christ, much better things. No more shadows or types. We have him and we have him uh, with us. We have the earnest of God, the Holy Spirit, to guide and to lead us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, to instruct us in his word. And our God is living. So we need to serve him in our lives. That's what we need to do. We need to manifest his life to others. And I pray that uh, through the study of the word, through um, a better understanding of what he's done for us, that we would all draw closer to him and that we would honor and glorify him uh, with our lives and in the lives that he's given us. That's our purpose. That's why he has redeemed us. So let's pursue that. Uh, let's close. Father, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the study of your word. Thank you for your son and how that he has given us this closer relationship, this better relationship and how that all of our promises are now heavenly promises, that there is nothing to keep us from you. There's nothing to separate us from you, that Jesus has accomplished everything to draw us near. And I pray, Father, we would manifest that to others, that they would see that in us and that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.